Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And for today's show, we're going to share some of our top writing, publishing, and marketing tips that we've learned along the way, things that have made a big difference in our author careers. We're all about 10 years into this at this point, and we've, you know, we've talked about our mistakes before and some of our successes. So hopefully we just kind of each had, I think we have three or four, five, something like that, things that, uh, each of us has found very useful. Maybe one of those things we would have told ourselves back in the beginning if we'd known then what we know now. Um, and we also have a few of the craft questions. Uh, we'll keep those till the end that we didn't quite get to on the craft show a couple weeks ago. Before we jump into that stuff, do you guys have any news that you would like to share? Uh, sure. Uh, my life has continued to be a, sort of a train wreck of non-writing work. But I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. The reason you see a fancy background here and sort of weird glitchy stuff is because right now my actual office is filled with boxes, the same boxes that were there last time I recorded, but now they're empty. I just haven't gotten rid of them. But uh, I also have a lot of uh, artwork I can mess with, so I might as well start messing with it. Uh, in terms of actual new news, my patrons got the early copy of Big Sigma 6, which is called Nova Igniter. That comes out a week from tomorrow. Well, as we're recording this, so a week from Tuesday. We'll just say the date. It's coming out the 27th. Um, because of real-life stuff that's been happening and the general psychological funk that it has put me in, I have not been able to do a proper promotional push on this. I just haven't had the possibility to do so. Uh, so this is just sort of dropping on the Internet with what, I, what used to be my standard launch strategy, which is a couple of mentions on social media and uh, two or three newsletters separated by a week talking about the pre-order the launch and did you get it when it launched so we'll see how that goes this was the sixth this is the sixth book in my second most popular series so it had a pretty low success potential as it is like it, you know it had it's going to sell slightly worse than book five and book five was not a life changer so uh, i didn't i wasn't that worried about not giving this one as much of a push as i normally would particularly since my normal push has never been stellar. Uh, I'm also prepping for NaNoWriMo. Uh, this year is going to be my Ready Player One inspired story. It's called Top Level Player. And honestly, I'm not sure if I'm even going to be able to put this one up for sale because it is going to be utterly packed with pop culture stuff. This might, this is just a palate cleanser as I used to do for every NaNoWriMo. Uh, I'm doing that again this time. And then I'm probably going to be doing something brand new for next year unless I finish my urban fantasy. Either way, uh, this story is just sort of for me and for fun. So uh, that's that's what I got. And um, I'm still doing the NaNoWriMo, um, the storybundle.com forward slash NaNoWriMo bundle. So go check that out. That's a, a bunch of business books for authors. And um, Nolan passed his PMP certification exam thingy-majigger. Uh, he got 100% on it, which was kind of exciting because the majority of people fail it the first time they take it. And he's now working towards getting a, getting certified as a scrum master. Um, and because my writing time right now is so sparse, because um, I'm focusing so much on, on giving him all the time that I usually would take so he could study and get these exams taken, I've been working on courses. I think you listeners probably know. And so um, they are easier to figure on my kids' schedules. Um, I kind of want to know what our listeners are interested in learning. So I'm probably going to post a um, a, uh, a poll on Facebook when this goes live. 
And I mean, I could do courses on like time management or dictating or Zapier, you know, the, the automation, um, program that I use or anything else like King Sumo, just something like that. So if there's anything you guys want me to do a tutorial on, um, go ahead and post on that poll in Facebook and, um, let me know your thoughts. Cough there. Um, I've also been obsessing a whole ton over pre-made book covers. Um, I can't, I can't believe how amazing and professional they've gotten since we started doing all this author stuff. Uh, they are, there's just some really awesome, amazing options out there now. But if you're not already a member, check out the book cover design marketplace on Facebook. Uh, you post what you're looking for along with a budget and designers pitch to you. Um, you can also do what I do, which is, um, stock the pre-mades that designers post every day. And there are some very professional designers there posting really amazing stuff. Um, I actually bought one for only $148 and that included the PSD files and permission to do whatever I needed with it. So like ads, banners, audio print, etc. She sent the sent it to me with the art complete and then with the text as a different file so I can resize and move the text around and all of that. And it is an absolutely gorgeous book cover. Um, and I was just, I'm super excited about that because $148, my goodness, how often do we spend that little on a really good book cover? I mean, not very often. Um, anyway, so the link will be in the description. I mean, in the show notes, if Lindsay wants to put it in the show notes, I did put it in our notes. <laughs> so that's pretty much it for me this week. Courses that listeners are interested in. How to make $1 million this year from ebooks. Start working on it. That's a great idea. I think I will. I'm going to probably um, de de uh, delegate it off to somebody who's closer than me at making a million dollars. Um, hmm. Let's see. Lindsay. <laughs> yeah. Just write 80 novels. It's, it's no problem. <laughs> All right. So uh, news for me, I'm actually still kind of trying to figure out the internet thing at my rural place. <laughs> I am, uh, if you see the YouTube video, I'm in a shipping container house currently <laughs> with wood paneling. It looks like I moved up to a cabin in Alaska or something. Um, but it is a different internet. The satellite dishes up in the tree. I inherited all this with the property. So it, it's actually not, uh, doesn't have the time delay that the other one does. So I may see if I can get that satellite in the tree, move to a tree closer to my house. And maybe that would be a solution. It's right now it's, it's not perfect, but hopefully it'd be better in July. I'll get something, you guys. <laughs> this is country living, you know. Um, couple of news things actually from the publishing world that I thought you guys might be interested in. Uh, David Gogren just posted a video about a change with BookBub ads. Uh, they've added a recency cap of three days. So it won't show your ad to the same user more than once every three days. David thinks this will improve CTR because your ad will be shown to more fresh people. You won't get like somebody opening the email every day, seeing it three days in a row, it'll at least be a gap. Uh, and he had some more thoughts on that, depending on whether, you know, you're doing a slow drip kind of campaign or burning through your ads quickly. So I'll go ahead and post the link to the video in the show notes. Uh, this is going to be episode 60, I think. Uh, it's about 15 minutes. You can just throw it on in the background when you're washing the dishes or <laughs> whatever you do. Uh, and another little tidbit of news, uh, Google Play emailed me. I think they, they email all the podcasters now. I'm like, hey, we got news. Please share it. Um, but you can now earn 70% of the list price on ebooks sold to customers in 60 plus countries. No pricing requirement. So like if it's under $2.99, you still get the 70% or above $9.99. And of course, no exclusivity required. And I'll put the link in that. It's apparently now much easier to create a new account. You just go to g.co.uk 
I'll definitely put the link in it since I can't read it. <laughs> G.co slash play slash publish. You guys got that right. All right. Link in the show notes and you can create an account there. Uh, as far as my personal news, I am finally getting back to a normal schedule. I got my uh, new Death Before Dragons book edited last week and uh, sent it off to my beta readers. And I've got the first 20,000 words going in the next one. I'm making this uh, another trilogy. I wrote the first six and kind of six was a stopping point. But, uh, you know, it's selling pretty well and the readers wanted more. So I decided to do another three, three of them. And then that'll be, I'm finishing up this fall, hopefully get all those done. These are fairly short compared to my sci-fi. Uh, so hopefully that'll be doable. And then I will get started on this, you know, the new series from 2021, the Epic Fantasy I've mentioned a few times. It's always a, uh, the new project always seems more shiny and enticing. So it's been really hard to just focus on finishing up the sci-fi and the urban fantasy and not letting myself start the new thing until those are done. So that is uh, what's been going on here. And I guess if that's it for news, I will jump into the first tips slash advice we've learned along the way. You guys made me go first. I see how it is. Nobody filled it in the space on top of me. <laughs> All right. So my first tip, and I actually, in this case, I, I had to do this myself because I didn't have any money. So there was no other choice, but it's just to keep your expenses bare bones until you've made it. At, you know, until you're making a lot more than uh, it costs to, you know, get your book edited and cover art. You know, the first book I did, I spent about $200 on the edit, which was awful. <laughs> and I'm, I now spend much more, but it was what it was. You know how it is when you're, you're just shoe stringing, boot stringing, some, some kind of strings and uh, $200 on the cover. And that was a lot. That was like $400. You know? <laughs> I think I had to pay somebody to format it too, because I didn't know how to format stuff and there was no vellum back then. So, that was the first book. And, you know, I really suggest just, I think it's easy to look at, like, check out the people who are podcasting, you know, like, oh man, look at those amazing illustrated covers that Joe Lalo has. And, and then you find out, well, it's going to be a thousand dollars for me to get an illustrated cover. And here I am, just as my first book. Uh, you know, I've mentioned it before, my Dragon Blood series that, um, I think I published the first one back in 2013 or 14, and they were just really inexpensive Photoshop covers with stock art. And I've just left those covers alone. I, you know, my cover designers even said like, Hey, we should redo this series. They're a little dated. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm not touching that series. It's still whenever I can get a book publisher's only that just thing sells. I've been afraid to like redo the, uh, blurb or cover or anything, even though they're, they are very simple. So don't, you don't necessarily, you know, of course, and it's an advantage if you can have a really professional cover. But as Andrea was saying just a minute ago, you can find these pre-mades for under $200. Uh, and sometimes they're just perfect for your story. If you go poking around enough, you can find something. So that's my tip. Don't feel like you have to spend a ton to publish your first series. Wait until you're kind of proven the concept and got some readers and you know, a certain number of people are going to buy your books each time you put a new one out before just, you know, having that big sunk cost and you're digging yourself out of the hole. Plus you're going to want to spend money on advertising in this day and age. So, uh, do you have any, if, yeah, go ahead. If you guys have any thoughts on that before we move on to Joe. Yeah. Um, actually, I don't know. In the beginning, the, the advice is still the same. I mean, in the beginning, you take the money that you earn from the business and put it back into the business and don't bite off more than you can chew. And things grow really slowly in the beginning. And so it's just very important to just be really, really patient about the financial side of things. Cause like 30 bucks does not always become 60 bucks the next month. It could become 35 the next month. So just be patient and, and keep plugging along. Yeah. And I, uh, like, 
I, we, we spoke a lot in the past about like delegating and, and getting personal assistance and stuff for the stuff that's not main moneymakers. Early on, you're not doing that. Early on, you're learning how to do that all yourself. And it, I, I have said in the past, like if I was going to write a nonfiction book, it would probably be the absolute cheapest way to make an ebook because that's the way I did it for the first few years. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. There's huge value in figuring out how to do things on a budget and you can do good work on a budget. Frankly, if you stay on a budget, then you can devote a lot more money to advertising, but you gotta learn how to invest intelligently. Um, so as for my, uh, as for my first tip, uh, if you're, let's assume you're, you've been in, in it, you've been in it for a while, and you're established enough to have a vocal fan base. Tread carefully once this happens, because you should be mindful of what your audience thinks of your stuff, but take their immediate requests and even their enthusiasm with a grain of salt. Folks are certainly being genuine. I don't doubt that any everything that my fans have said to me they've meant, but it's easy to get carried away catering to the fan base and giving them precisely what they want, forgetting that the people who are talking to you are a very small subset, ideally, of your overall market. You can and should make your super fans happy, but making sweeping financial decisions based upon requests or encouragement from your super fans can really cause problems. Uh, try to keep a wider view. And resist the urge to shift direction of your series based on the feedba feedback from your super fans. Again, you want these people to be happy, but they became fans of you from what you already wrote. It's a good idea if they like it to give them more of what they like. But if they tell you that they want you to change it, you know, you're the writer and, and you sort of have to, they have to trust you to give them something that they like. Uh, once you start changing your overall like if you've written an entire arc, uh, sort of outlined it ahead of time, and then people sort of try to get you to change it, things can fall apart. I've never done it, but I've considered it and I've seen how the, how the pieces would unravel. So just generally speaking, your audience is great and you should make them happy. But the part of the audience that you actually hear from, don't let the inmates run the asylum. I've done it in the past and I've made stuff I was happy with that I absolutely would not be able to still be an author if I was depending upon that. <laughs> so just in general, have a realistic view of your audience. Um, yeah, that was a, a problem I ran into. Like I had a lot of readers that were like, you need to do a, a backup, you know, series on, you know, do a whole series on this character, on this character, on that and do this and that. And I'm like, uh, I cater to them and, 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 uh, it didn't end up going super well. Um, but, then another thing was, you know, my flagship series is 10 books long. Um, a couple of those books probably weren't necessary. I just kept doing the book, the series, because my readers wanted it. And that's not always the best thing. Yeah, I'll just say that um, I've always been kind of careful with this. Like, I'm not one to survey people and be like, what would you like to see next? Because I know what I'll get. And I know that that won't be the most profitable thing to do, or even necessarily something I'm excited about. Usually when people email and say like, oh yeah, when they have babies and then they go, you know, do this. Like everybody always wants babies when the characters finally hook up romance, you know, like there happens to be babies. I don't know. I'm like, I'm just writing epic fantasy that happens to have a romance, but um. Yeah, I, I agree with what Joe said. It's usually, you know, kind of a small segment of your audience that's emailing you and, and 
you know, make a request. And I usually say, well, that sounds like a good thing for you to write a fan fiction about. <laughs> um, because I, what you should look at is kind of the sales numbers and then just relying on your own experience after a while. That is one perk of having written a number of series. <laughs> now I have a better idea looking back on which ones did well and which ones didn't do as well. So I can let that be my guide. Um, but you know, every now and then you can do like a bonus scene or something. I do those, uh, and post them on the web and those are always hits and there's no pressure then. So that can be a way to maybe make them happy without <laughs> saying, Oh, I'll just write a new trilogy for with what you want. Go ahead. Andrew. I think Andrew is next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so my thing, this is the very first thing just popped in my head just because I'm struggling with it right now. Cause I don't know with everything going on with Nolan's career change and all of that, I'm just needing to learn to be flexible and not just, I mean, just in everything. And this is kind of like one of those, you're going to be struggling with this for your whole life, Andrea. You might as well get used to it now. Um, when something that has worked well in the past stops working, we need to be willing to stop doing it. So basically don't cling to ideas and advice day in and day out because uh, things change and people who were right in the past aren't always right. But on the flip side, just because everyone says it's true, doesn't don't necessarily believe it. So for example, perma-free doesn't work anymore. So Joe was talking about you know, your loudest readers are very vocal and they're going to mislead you. The same thing is kind of true when it comes to authors. There are some authors that are super negative and everybody hears that negativity. And so what they're saying is not always the case, uh, but it's going to be, uh, your mileage may vary things. So perma-free might not work for some people anymore, but you know, it might work for you still really well. Um, and then other examples. So like focusing on big launches to be successful, you need to, you know, you always focus on a big launch and you aren't successful unless you do, or having a small launch and focusing on making money later. That one applies to me. It's what I usually do. So just don't be, don't be nervous or shy to mix things up. If, if what you do is, um, not working for you else anymore or what you do. You usually do the same thing. Um, just, you know, change things around, be flexible, roll with the punches. As they say, live things come up. Just don't, don't stress so much. This is, this is a career. Yes, but it's, it needs to fit around number one, what works for you and what works for your readers. And then just, you know, real life stuff. I definitely agree. Uh, it can be particularly painful to be flexible in this way when the thing that's not working is something that you like doing. Uh, I have multi, I mentioned, I was talking earlier uh, and also before the podcast about how I was shooting for a sci-fi serial at one point. I like writing serials. I very much enjoy having something out that I can get feedback on rapidly. And I've written two full novels like that and they've just not been particularly successful. Again, I've really enjoyed them and they've got their vocal fan base, but they just don't, they're not money makers. So I had to just quietly sunset the idea of doing serials and it's, it was just necessary and it's been a very sound decision. Right. I think it's important to realize that what works does kind of change over time. It's easy to get stuck in this rut of like, well, Prima Free Book One worked great for me in 2012 and it still works kind of okay. So I'll just keep doing that. But, you know, we've talked about how things get more competitive, how there's more stuff out there, and then just how things kind of evolve and, and things happen and other things come to start to work better. So being flexible. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're obviously open to uh, learning and trying new things that are working for people. So that's awesome. You know, just don't get stuck and like ad adamant about, I think I'm moving on. That's like one of my tips uh, farther down is something about don't be dogmatic. So I won't spoil it for you guys. All right. But my next tip, is to learn how to see small amounts of progress as inspiring rather than depressing. Some people think they're going to kill it with their first series and they get discouraged when they don't. 
But when I first sold a book to someone I didn't know, uh, even though I didn't make very much, I saw the potential. And, you know, it was the same thing. My pre- my prior career, I was producing content. I had all my own websites. And um, I remember like 2001 or two or something, I made my first affiliate income of 93 cents from Amazon on a book I made on like my Comcast account or a website I made on my Comcast account. And I was like, 93 cents, man. That's awesome. All I have to do is keep doing that and do more of it and do it better. That was my mindset. And, you know, instead it could have been like, dang, man, I spent hours doing research and building that website and inserting those affiliate links. And all I got was a lousy 93 cents. So, you know, I just, I, I don't know how to change that mindset. Like if you kind of have that mindset already, I, I guess I'm fortunate that I always, uh, saw the potential. Like if I did this, all I have to do is keep doing it and learn how to do it better. And I can earn more money versus, um, man, how hard they made any money. That was such a waste of time. So if you can kind of cultivate that mindset of like small successes mean you can have more larger successes, just kind of have to figure out what it was, like what page on that site led to the sale. Maybe I need to do more like that, but which book am I selling the most of? Maybe I need to do more like that, you know? So it's just, not getting discouraged by just little teeny amounts of progress. And, you know, it's so many things are like that. Like if you, um, if you're a stock person, you know, and you, you buy the dividend stocks and you have a, the dividend reinvests. So like, you know, you have 50 shares of whatever Microsoft and it, it purchased like 0.07 shares for you. And you're like, well, that's stupid. That's a complete late waste of money. But then you go away and you forget that was there for like 10 years. And suddenly, you know, you're, thing has gone up from like 10,000 to 100,000. You've seen all those videos out there about compounding interest and that kind of thing. So it's just, don't be discouraged. Like if you, if you made some money, you can make more. All right, you guys. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I like what I was saying earlier, you know, your first month you might make $60 and your next month you might make $65 or whatever. Um, Progress is progress. And it's really, it's, I mean, it might not be what you're expecting, but things rarely are. And the vast majority of authors who are, you know, I mean, most of us are just going to be middle of the road. There's not that many outliers in either direction. Those of those who are listening to this podcast aren't going to be the ones who maybe they are, I'm not going to say this, but you know, they, they're not necessarily going to be the ones who are only making like $20 a year, you know, which is what everybody says self-published authors are. Um, or, but they're also probably not going to be the ones making millions a year. But so I'm just saying like, yeah, just keep track of those little uh, successes. And if you're feeling discouraged, then look at something that, you know, I don't know, Joe, you've got like a, a, a list or a folder of things that make you happy, right? I yeah. do. I have a proof of awesome folder. Exactly. So look at that if you're feeling discouraged and then just recognize that success comes in tiny little waves. Yeah. What I, what I used to do and I still do this is I used to, uh, uh, uh put my earnings in, in it, I, basically I would relate them to actual physical things in my life. So early on in my career, when writing was not my day job, uh, one smash word sale of one of my books earned me like a dollar 25, which was how much a soda cost at that time. And I, I would get an email and I'd be like, Ooh, I'm not going to go buy a soda. And then as you know, it rolled forward. I was like, Oh wow, I'm able to pay my cell phone bill with my books. And then it was, Oh, I'm able to pay all of my bills with my books. And then it was, Oh, I can put the down payment on a house. And even today as you know, I've, I've gone back down past the down payment on a house phase, but I still look at it I'm like, Oh, well, you know, Google play, that's going to cover health insurance. And this is going to cover that. And that's going to cover this. I just, even when the numbers are small, if the numbers are big enough, it, it 
lots of small hoses fills the bucket faster. So yeah, it's definitely a thing to keep in mind, uh, especially when you're keeping close track of what those actual hoses are giving you. So my next tip here would be uh, get into the habit of making notes for yourself. I'm always, I always have a pad. Ooh, it goes, it goes away in my picture. Uh, I always have a pad with me. Uh, uh, I have one in my back pocket. I have one on my desk. And there's also all the various note-taking apps. In every single point in my life, I've got some way to take notes. Uh, when I take a walk and I've got an idea, the pad's in my back pocket. Uh, if I'm listening to a podcast and here's something that interests me or something I want to do, jot a note down. Uh, little notes like those give me small tasks to fill in empty spots in my day. Like if I'm procrastinating or if I've got, if I know I don't have enough time between now and when I'm going to have to take a break to do something bigger, I'll take a look at my list of notes. Oh, let me, let me look up that, uh, you know, that promo site or let me go check out that program. It gives you a way to just sort of get little nugget sized pieces of uh, productivity out of your day. And this is absolutely key when it comes to note taking. If you're writing and you have a thought, that will take you away from writing, make a note and keep writing. Uh, the, that, that I picked up early on in my process. And when I can do that, like, you know, religiously, when I'm very dedicated to just noting it and going back and fixing it later, I'll get twice as many words written in a day. Uh, when I can like research sessions separate from writing sessions, just because you took a time to make a couple of notes. Uh, also, this goes for prep too. Like when you're taking, when you're, when you're doing your initial, uh, outlining, you make notes about stuff, you know, you're going to have to check back on just basically having a good, well-indexed list of things to do, uh, is just going to streamline your life. And going on that note, um, if you, like, if you're writing a book and you have an idea pop into your head, that's like, this is so good, write the idea down and get back to the book, your book you're currently writing on. I promise you if that idea, I think Joe, maybe it was you who said this, if that idea is still exciting, once you finish the book, then pursue it. Um, otherwise don't just pursue something just because it's really exciting and your brain doesn't want to work on the tough thing, which is the current project. I do both of those things too. I'm a, I know an idea is a keeper if I'm still excited about it in like three months. And same with Joe. Uh, when I'm writing my first draft, I just be like, check this in brackets or, you know, name in brackets if I don't remember the name of the character so that I don't waste the time that like this is my time for writing the first draft for trying to get as many words down as I can and getting it all down on paper as quickly as I can. And, and then when I edit is when I can go back and look for those names and check the character sheets and look for the things that I should have put in a character sheet, but didn't. And so I have to go back and look at the previous novels. So I uh, definitely agree on the notes thing. So my next tip is kind of going hand in hand with my tip I gave earlier. Um, don't panic that you'll miss out on opportunities. This is something that I'm still learning and still trying to, you know, figure out, but, but things come and there's, and, it, and this goes along with marketing and everything. There's, you know, people say, this is so fantastic. It worked really, really great. Don't, don't jump on everything that comes by. So you need to evaluate your time, your energy levels, your finances, your resources. Make sure that it's something that you really want to do something you have time to do and that you can see through to the end to make, to see if it's actually going to work for you. So like ask yourself, can you really afford to do, you know, this awesome opportunity and this amazing chance? Uh, the same goes for marketing, like I said. So pick one thing that you've heard works and stick it to it until you figure it out. Um, and then again, like I said earlier, be, you know, be flexible. Don't, don't forget that, um, that, that like, I mean, I don't know if, if you figure out that something is something that's not working, then be flexible enough to change it. 
Um, but there's a line to walk between sticking things out until you see fruits and recognizing when something will never work for you. And that's something that you're going to have to probably just figure out for yourself. It's, I don't know, that's, that's the best advice in the world. You're going to have to figure it out for yourself, yo. <laughs> I know that uh, early on, I would, uh, I would always say yes to anyone who wanted to do a collaborative project. And I got some really good short stuff out of it and I've been able to repurpose it. But if I was not able to repurpose it into anthologies and stuff, a lot of those would, a lot of those projects would have not been worth the effort. Uh, so I've learned since then to really monitor and, uh, unless it's something that utilizes what I've already done, or if it's something that I really see the possibility of, no matter how exciting it is for me, I, I, I don't always say yes. So yeah, you definitely have to, other opportunities will come along. And if it does, if it's not a good fit, then don't jump on it. I think this falls into that FOMO or fear of missing out category where I, I've often had this feeling where like a new category comes out on Amazon, like, Ooh, military fantasy is now a category on Amazon. And look, it is not very competitive. I could just write a series that falls into that and take advantage of that before it gets super competitive. And there's a whole bunch of books in there and that can work. But if you're not already writing military fantasy, if that's not your thing, if you're over here working on your urban fantasy series and in, you know, if you allow yourself to start jumping around and kind of chasing different, you know, genres or like, oh, uh, reverse harem's popular this year. I'm going to do that. You may end up really hurting your chances of taking off in like the genre you're super passionate about. Like maybe it's kind of a slog now, but if you had just kept going in that one, like it, and it depends, like Henry was saying, if there's potential, you know, if it's doing well, it's just not as fast as you want it to be. Maybe sticking with it would be a good idea. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying new things. Like if you are a fast writer, maybe you can try a book in the, in the new thing. But I, I've kind of done that some in the past and I usually regret because it's kind of veering away from like my favorite genres that I probably should be focused on. So, you know, my whole experiment with a pen name was a bit under that. I, I don't really regret that. They were fun. But at the same time, now that I'm not working on them, they hardly sell at all because I'm not really marketing them. So it's just much easier to be focused now on my own brand, kind of sticking with the epic, high fantasy, occasionally some urban fantasy, some space opera. I probably already have too many that you should do. But I, I guess I would just, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying something new, but maybe make yourself finish your current series at least. And then only do a small commitment to the new thing. Like try a book instead of being like, oh, I'm going to write five and rapid release them and kick some butt in this new genre. You know, see see first before committing half the year or the whole year, however long it takes you to write those things. All right, moving on to my next, next tip. It's uh, whether it's writing or marketing, um, I would try to double down on what you're good at as long as it moves the dial and also what you like doing or you dislike less than you dislike other things. <laughs> if it's marketing and that's not your thing, that may be how it is. For example, if you are like amazing at writing fight scenes, you had 20 years of Taekwondo or karate or whatever, start your books with fight scenes if, and make that your thing, like your signature thing. Like, and readers know right away that's what they're going to get on page one. Um, maybe your thing like me is dialogue and dialogue is what you think you're best at doing those relationships between the characters. Put the dialogue on page one. At least get these things in your sample pages. And 
it's not that you shouldn't take time to try to become competent at other things like the world building for me is something like, yeah, I got to be better at world building or I have to slow down and do a little more description. Like it's good to get that core competency in all of the craft stuff, but there's, you know, there's going to be something you, you kind of know in your heart and people have probably told you like you are amazing at this, you know, you're choreographing these battles. It's so realistic. I love reading that stuff. So don't make yourself wait till page 170 to write your first fight scene if that's something you're you're good at and you love because it may become that thing you become known for as an author and also it will attract the right kind of audience right off the bat in the sample pages for me as a reader i hate fight scenes i skim the heck out of that crap and i always say when i write them i kind of just i kind of keep them short because it's it's not something that excites me but you know there are readers out there that like love like ari salvatore in the fantasy realm here it's long pages of like sword fighting and uh you know the i'm gonna say guys not the girls can't like sword fights too but uh, the guys that love it really love that and really love the him for that uh same thing with marketing right maybe you really love podcasting and youtubing and building a network with authors because you're you're like a killer extrovert <laughs> you're one of those people or maybe you hate all that stuff because you love tinkering with ads and spreadsheets and really seeing what works you don't have to do everything to succeed at, at marketing and you probably will have more success by focusing on the couple things that you are both fairly good at and that's enjoyable to you. Or like I said, it's, you like it, you dislike it less than the other things that you dislike. All right. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it can be said enough that, you know, people are always like, you need to be doing Facebook ads. You need to be doing Amazon ads. You need to be doing BookBub ads. That's that's not true. You need to be doing, like Lindsay said, what you're good at and what you, you have the time for and what you have the energy for. And if you're really good at Facebook ads or something or whatever, and you can make them turn, then continue focusing on that. Don't stress so much about going and tackling um, BookBub. Um, and so like, focus on your strengths. Don't stress so much about your weaknesses. I'm not saying... Uh, you should ignore weaknesses. But if you're really good at writing action scenes and you're not very good at writing d- dialogue, don't, I don't know, like there's kind of a, there's a mix. You do want to get better at writing dialogue. It obviously needs to be natural feeling and all that. But if you're really good at writing action scenes, your action scenes, like Lindsay said, are going to be what pulls readers in, not the dialogue or in, you know, vice, whatever she was saying, dialogue versus action, whatever. Um, but so just focus on what makes you a good writer, what readers like about you, and then get better at the things that you're weak on, but don't focus so much on that. Don't, don't stress basically is what I'm saying. Don't ruin your life over, um, trying to make yourself into something that you aren't. Yeah, but everyone has strengths. And no matter how much you uh, improve across the board, you're always going to be better at one thing than another. And this is a piece of advice that I am generally very bad at following because I will realize about two-thirds of the way through a book that I have once again played away from my strengths. Like like Lindsay, I like to write dialogue. I'll frequently pair off characters and each of my like plot threads will have two characters. But occasionally I'll put together, and I can, by occasionally, I mean about one in three of my books will have giant long sections where a character is isolated from the rest. And I'm like, I can't put any dialogue dialogue in any of this. Why did I do that? Sometimes, you know, if it's sci-fi, I get to throw an extra AI in. I'm like, all right, well, there's there's another AI. He's, t- he's talking to his ship. It's fine. But yeah, it, it's, it's something to be aware of even before you start writing. When you look forward to what you are writing, make sure that you're playing to your strengths. 
Uh, all right. So my next uh, tip here, my last tip here is uh, consider keeping a file of abandoned or displaced ideas. I, I originally wrote this as never throw anything away, but that's not precisely how I should phrase it. Uh, just try not to throw anything away that you found interesting or exciting, even if it doesn't serve a specific purpose in the story you're working on. That's not to say that you should never cut scenes. If the scene needs to be cut, cut the scene. Uh, but instead of just hitting delete, if it's a big meaty chunk that you really enjoyed writing, but you just don't feel like it fits here, then make a file. I call it the bad idea file and put the bad idea into the bad idea file. And then it's in there and you save it for later. Uh, if you have an idea that you really love, you can't find a place for it in the current story, then you write, you jot down and make a note of that idea and put it in the bad idea file. And uh, I can't tell you how many times short stories uh, or even full novels have come out of the bad idea file. I, I have a Patreon, and the first year of Patreon stories were little nuggets of stuff that I pulled out of longer stories and turned into uh, their own sort of standalone short. And it's the, the file still has plenty of stuff in it. I am a fountain of bad ideas. So, uh, you know, those, by the way, those bad ideas don't always turn into like when they eventually get rescued and turned into something else, sometimes it's in an entirely different genre. I've had fantasy ideas that I turned into sci-fi ideas just because, oh, that didn't work here. But if I make it technology instead of magic, it works really well as sort of a, you know, a third act turn in this book. And, uh, yeah, just in general, it, 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 here's the thing that it really helped me with. I used to hate cutting scenes. I hated cutting scenes because I felt like I was wasting my time. But if I tell myself I'm not cutting this scene, I'm saving this scene for later, suddenly I don't feel bad about taking it out because it's not, it's going to show up again later. So whatever, you know, it's Ilgade's day in the, in, in the sun. It, I didn't waste my time writing it. Uh, and also, by the way, cut scenes and alternate scenes are really good for like newsletter extras. So even if you don't intend to develop it to its own thing, just sort of a behind the scenes bonus, uh, they'll, they'll be great for. So yeah, you know, use, use the entire Buffalo is a phrase that my, my brother would say. I love that idea. The bad idea file. I think that's hilarious. I don't know. Like there, I have a kind of a bad idea file. It's called miscellaneous story ideas in, in folder. And, um, there's one story in there that I wrote before I met, um, Nolan and it was, Oh geez, it's the, the angst. Oh my gosh. It could rival twilight and angst. And it was, it was about, I don't know. It was just really, it was, yeah, it was pathetic. That's one that's never going to see the light of day, <laughs> but I do. I love the idea of having a bad idea folder. I like the, I especially like that because when you write these scenes, there's emotions tied into those scenes, even if you realize it's not going to work for the over goal of that book, but so cutting it out and putting it into another place where you could potentially use it in the future. That's a really great idea because then the emotions you're you're not like killing yourself emotionally, you know, you, you're saving it for, you know, as you said, fodder for future stories. I actually do this. I don't do it very much anymore. I used to cut a lot more earlier on in my writing career <laughs> before I started outlining and just, I got a little smoother, but I, I definitely do this where I'm like, this chunk of dialogue is lovely. It's funny. It has nothing to do with the plot and they've just been standing here bantering for too long. I like, I think I should cut it. So I cut it and I put it down in a little cut scenes, special thing. And it makes me like Joe said, it makes me feel better about cutting it. In my case, I don't think I ever go back and use those, but I could. And that's okay. That's what makes it okay to cut it. Otherwise, the temptation is like, oh, but no, it'll never see the light of day. It was a funny, it was a ha ha. People will enjoy it. But usually when you cut stuff, 
you know, your gut told you to cut it. There was a reason, <laughs> but, but I could, if I wanted to, it's there. All right. I actually have one more that I didn't put in the notes. I probably wrote it on my phone because like Joe, I'm always taking notes. Uh, I use my phone instead of a notepad, but because uh, I always have it with me, uh, like everybody in the world these days. So I've got, I don't know how many different notes on my phone, but I'm, I'm always putting things in there. Uh, my last one though is to, uh, this probably goes with Andrea's early one about be flexible, but don't be too dogmatic about anything. Be open-minded and be willing to put your assumptions aside, uh, you know, because I did this a lot at the beginning. I thought because I didn't like mailing lists and I never signed up for them, other people wouldn't either. That was completely wrong, you know. And I've, I've seen it a lot with authors. My work is worth at least $7.99. I'm not bargain basement pricing my ebook. My work is worth $9.99. You know, I'm as good as any trad published author. And I, I realized early on that your income was about sales times price, like units sold times the price. So if the price is $7.99, but the unit sold is really low, okay, maybe that's not going to be a great thing. Maybe at $0.99 cents or $2.99 and the unit sold is way higher. The total is what I look at. So I didn't have a problem with that particular one, but like I did with newsletters and I'm still to this day, I'm like, I don't do social media. Who is going to click on these ads? You know, like I've never, I don't think I've ever clicked on a Facebook ad. I don't even click on ones I would like now for other authors because I don't want to cost them money. I'm just like, I'll go check out the book on Amazon. So um, but again, you can't, we're like, just by being authors, we're different <laughs> than normal people or even the average reader who, you know, may not be normal either, but you have to be willing to try things and be flexible. I mean, like, um, I think I was pretty hardcore, just going to be not exclusive to with Amazon when KDP became a thing. And for like three years, I, I just ignored it, but I kept seeing people making oodles of money in Kindle Unlimited and, you know, doing really well. And I was like, ah, I'm going to try launching a series into it. What the heck? And, you know, that year my income went like up hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it was, it was a big jump. And, you know, not to say you can't be successful wide. Plenty of people are, but I, I saw that and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to start launching things into Kindle Unlimited, get what I can there, and then I'll make them wide. And you don't have to do that by any means, but if you can be open-minded, like I see people that are hardcore wide, that's it. That's, that's their philosophy. And then I see other people like, Hey, I'm hardcore exclusive with Amazon because I'm making a lot of money. So that's my philosophy. And they never try the other thing. And you know, maybe you try it and it doesn't work out and that's fine, but you don't know until you try. So, uh, and that's just one example. Like there's so many things where I see authors take a really hard stance and you have to be careful not to, be on the sinking ship. So it's not a bad idea to dabble on both sides, whatever it is. You know, I'm not just saying like KU and wide, um, but again, like 9.99, 7.99 pricing versus trying, maybe I'll try the lower price or a free book one to see if I can get people to buy the other books in the series. So uh, again, not trying to, <laughs> to lecture you, but I feel that by not being real dogmatic about that kind of stuff and being willing to try it, I've, you know, opened up things to make more money and maybe there'll become a time where I don't care as much about that. And I'm just going to be no longer exclusive because um, I don't really want to be exclusive. It's just being willing to try it uh, because I see it helping out so much. So that's, that's my thoughts on that. Uh, do you have any, Andrew has another tip. And if you have any thoughts on uh, dogmaticism. 
Yeah, I have another tip and I have a thought on that. <laughs> so like you were saying in the very beginning, you know, you didn't want to do things because it didn't appeal to you as, as a, as an author or as a person. Uh, the same goes for, I don't know, all we read, authors read widely. We know we, we read multiple genres, but the vast majority of readers aren't that way. And so when you're writing your books, just keep that in mind. Don't, don't throw, um, unless you absolutely want to don't throw multiple genres into the same book because you're going to have a hard time marketing and selling that. Uh, if your goal is to write your passion project, then do it and have fun. If your goal is to write a passion project and make money on it, not necessarily the passion project, but something that, you know, it makes you excited, then consider writing more towards what readers are expecting. And you can do that by, I don't know, there's so much advice out there on writing to market. You don't have to write straight to market. Um, none of us do, but, um, you just keeping in mind what readers are expecting versus what you want in a book and what you like in a book versus what readers like in a book. I will say like, speaking of like dogmaticism and also I used to be incredibly tribal. I still am incredibly tribal, but now it's in my head and I was like, hold on, let me see if that makes sense. And the phrase that I use is, let me, let me run it through the simulator. Like instead of just turning this down out of hand, let me just see, let me, let me put in the variables and see how this would work for me. And this, this, this doesn't just go for like, you know, tactics and things when it comes to, to, promotion in that just the content of your book like i have had uh, i have one beta reader in particular that i'm willing to argue with and he's willing to argue with me and we've had some like weeks long knockdown drag outs over tiny stupid little things and me actually changing those things is about 50 50 no matter how hard i actually argue i'll argue for two weeks and be like oh yeah so you're right <laughs> it's like you sort of have to you know judge things by their merit, even if your gut tells you something different, your gut is probably pretty smart and certainly it should be part of your consideration, but it shouldn't be the entire consideration. That's pretty awesome. Cause, um, I don't know if it's something that's just a matter of pride versus a matter of, of this is the way it is, you know, just, you know, sometimes just accepting somebody else's thing, but I don't know, arguing for weeks. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, okay. So my last tip is, uh, don't hesitate to cut things out that you a don't enjoy or B don't bring you profit. You can do things that don't bring you profit if you enjoy them. Um, and you can do things that, that, uh, don't bring you, uh, that, um, that you don't enjoy that do bring you profit. Um, but you don't need to hand, I mean, you don't need to be doing everything and you don't also don't need to hand things off to an assistant. You can actually completely cut it out of your business model. So if you don't like Facebook, then why use Facebook? If it, if it just, you dread it. And if you just getting on, it just kills you every single time. Don't do it. You know, same with Twitter, same with, same with honestly a newsletter list, even though I'm always saying you should have a newsletter list. If you don't absolutely like doing it and there's no reason for you to do it, which I don't know, there's kind of lots of reasons to do a newsletter. Um, but I just, I, I don't know, like your news, you don't even have to have an assistant doing things for you. The most important things for an author are, is to write, always write. And you can hire, you know, cover designers and editors and things like that. But beyond that, I mean, if you're writing and releasing and publishing, and I mean, there's just a lot of things on our author plates that aren't always absolutely necessary. I will comment that I think you should have a newsletter no matter what, <laughs> but like, you know, I think in our old show, we interviewed uh, Tammy Labreck who wrote Newsletter Ninja. Maybe we'll get back, get her back on this show too. You know, and I, I know Andrea's a big component, component, proponent, something, some kind of opponent uh, at a, you know, email every week. And whereas I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to email when I have a new release. So like, maybe you have one 
and, and you just you just kind of minimal on it because you hate it and that's not your thing, but you see the value. So that would be one advice. I would I would always still have a newsletter and a website where they can sign up for it. Just this is that super important, but um, definitely agree that there's so many things that I see people hiring VAs for, and I'm like, do you need to? do that? Like your Facebook launch party? Is that going <laughs> to... I mean, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you enjoy it or you like hanging out there as long as somebody else organizes it. But I think that is a good thing to ask yourself. Like, I'm not saying don't have a VA, but um, before you jump into that, because some people do it pretty early, which is, again, not a bad idea if you're super overwhelmed. Like if you're a stay-at-home mom with like 18 kids and uh, trying to do it all. <laughs> now, Andrew doesn't have quite that many. But... um maybe you need to vent, but just make a list. Like, do I need to do these things? Are they moving the dial? Cause we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Pareto principle and figuring out which 20% of the things you're doing is bringing in like 80% of the income. Cause it might break down that way. All right. Uh, Joe, did you have any thoughts on that? We're going to switch to some listener craft questions first, but, or you go first. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say like you figuring out what you can cut out is a really, almost kind of a fun thing to do. It's amazing, especially if you're self-published, it's amazing how few things are absolutely essential. Like you, you need a book, you need a cover, like there's a handful of things that are absolutely essential and almost everything else is optional. And, and uh, you know, some of the stuff is highly recommended, but if it's really hard for you, you can usually cobble together other stuff to replace it. And if you do well enough with the stuff that you prefer, this, is, this ties back in with double down on your strengths. Like uh, if someone says that something is mandatory, but you're terrible at it, but you're really good at one of the things that's sort of, you know, a counterpart to it or, or an alternative, then you can replace it. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely sort of fun. And by the way, it goes for craft, too. This is something I started messing with a lot with my short stuff is if there's a part of a story that I don't like, uh, you can do a short story that, that gets rid of that. Like you can do a short story where there is no introduction whatsoever and you just get thrown straight into it. And if it works for a short story, it might work for a novel. So there's, you can experiment with taking out the parts of even the, the, the book that you don't like. So yeah, it's def there's definitely value in like finding the unnecessary or the, the low, value things and, and experimenting and removing them. All right. And on that note, we will move to the three craft questions that we didn't answer last time. All right. This first one is from Stephen. Two questions. Number one, how important is the very first sentence of a new book? I'm someone who can rewrite the opening countless times as the beginning obviously sets the tone. And I feel like it can become obsessive to create an iconic opening. Call me Ishmael. Number two, what kind of writing style do you prefer? Sometimes it seems that many indie writers become obsessed with adjectives and write sentences like the cold wind on the gloomy mountains touched her pale skin while she walked the long stony path in her white boots, while writers like Stephen King stick to simple but elegant sentences. This happened in 1932 when the state penitentiary was still at Cold Mountain. All right. I don't know. I should have asked, asked the first one and we should have answered it and then asked the second one, but <laughs> go ahead, guys. I'll just, I'll just one to it. Uh, so for the first one, uh, a, a good first line is important, but it's not as important as having all of the rest of the lines that follow it. Uh, so I would try not to stress too much about it if it gets in the way of moving on. As long as the first line is just good enough to get someone to read the second line, then that's the minimum. Like that's where you got to get. So if your first line's not stellar, but it's interesting enough that they'll finish the paragraph, 
good enough, move on. Good enough, move on is like a writing philosophy that will get you places. <laughs> uh and uh as for the writing style i like a chunky approach uh where like the depth matches the current pace of the novel so a slow build that lingers on prosy descriptions uh is is good or a climactic battle scene that's got very careful short intense word choices simplicity is fine uh and excessively ornate prose can be exhausting so i try not to go too much on the prose for too long but i like to throw at least some garnish in there if not in the actual narration then i'll usually have at least one character who's particularly loquacious uh otherwise it just sort of feels like you're reading a court transcript which could be good for if you're doing a legal thriller but otherwise might not work so well for say you know an epic fantasy and my answer for the first one is, I think I talked about this in the craft episode, but I think the most important thing you can do is create a little bit of a mystery to draw people in. Because uh, you, if you're really doing a lot of interesting things with that first sentence, you re- run the risk of it becoming kind of gimmicky and not feeling natural and readers could be like, what? You know, I can't tell you how many times I've picked up samples and the character died in the first sentence. I'm just like, okay. And then you get through the whole sample chapters and it hasn't been explained. It's like, all right, I'm just not reading this. This is bull. (laughs) So, you know, to each your own. But I think, you know, I think I used the example last time the door was open. You know, like you're a human nature, like, well, why was the door open? I have to keep going and finding out. Just, uh, it can be simple and just creating a little bit of question mark that want, you know, that we want to answer. Um, as for the style thing, you know, to each his own. As a reader, I prefer prose that doesn't draw attention to itself and get in the way of the story because then I'm stopping looking at the words and you kind of start to lose the uh, image of the story that you're forming in your mind. That's how I feel. Um, but I honestly tend towards a longer sentence myself and I like throwing in some adverbs and vocabulary words despite all the advice out there that says to write at a sixth grade level or whatever. Uh, I think you should do what makes you happy. And part of it is just kind of finding your own style. I know when I was getting first starting, my style would kind of become whatever I just read. Like, I, you know, I was like, oh, I, I remember Glenn Cook. For some reason, I remember the Black Company books, their fantasy military <laughs> as it happens and i swear no sentence is longer than like 10 words so for a while there i was doing these really short choppy sentences and my my, i was in a workshop writing workshop and they're like what happened why are your sentences so short and choppy and even as a reader i felt his sentences were short and choppy but i got into the story and you kind of stop seeing that stuff as long as the story is good as a reader you stop even noticing it you just get used to the author's style and Hopefully that'll be the case with your work too. You know, the the story is good and it's going to draw people in. And after a while, they just you completely get used to the style. Uh, go ahead, Andrea. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Okay. So the first question was, let's see, uh, how important is the very first sentence of a new book? So, um, I don't know. It's possibly the most important sentence, but it doesn't have to be. So some books, and it also depends on your readers, honestly, some books hook on the first sentence and some take longer than that, even up to a chapter. Uh, keep in mind though, the longer you delay your hook, the more chance you have of losing readers. You don't, I don't know, like the first sentence is important, but it's not always, it's not necessarily and always the most important. Um, Possibly it is, but not always. Um, Kevin J. Anderson usually gives an example uh, that says, uh, the last camel died at noon. And I have no idea what book that's from. Um, but it paints the picture immediately of what's going on. So 
you know, they're in the desert because there's camels, right? And it died. So that means crap, what are they going to do, right? Not every book can start that way, but you don't want to delay it too much. And what I mean by not every book can start that way, not every book like romance would not work well with the last camel died at noon. (laughs) But, you know, so every genre is going to have its own things. Um, Also keep in mind the focus on focusing on having the best first sentence ever before you've written the book can be extremely detrimental. So write the dang book first, edit the dang book first, then worry about making that opening sentence better because you can really get stuck up on, on, um, on, um, uh, making sure that first sentence is absolutely perfect. And you don't want to do that. Um, and then, so the second answer, this question, answer to the second question, what writing style do you prefer? And <laughs> see, that would happen in one of your romances. The last camel died at noon before noon or whatever. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, okay. So what Lindsay said, so what comes naturally to you? How do you write and what is your style naturally? What do you enjoy? What, what brings you in as a reader? You might not recognize what your style is until you've written several books. Um, so when I first started writing, I thought I was writing the same as pretty much everyone out there. Uh, but I had multiple people tell me that my style was crisp and straightforward and professional. And honestly, I was a paralegal and I wrote tech documents and things like that. That doesn't mean my writing style is boring. Okay. <laughs> but I just, I had a more straightforward way to write. And, um, that really worried me until I learned that my readers were attracted to that. They wanted that crispness. They wanted that straightforwardness. Um, and I also found that it was like my personality. What you see is what you get. I don't beat around the bush. I don't put a lot of flourishes and wonderful things into what I'm saying or whatever. Um, I'm not really hard to read. Um, I don't usually have a problem telling people what's on my mind. Um, but sometimes it does take me a little while to figure out what is on my mind, but this comes across in my books. So recognize that you'll probably be able to write in different styles while you're trying to figure out what's best for you. But even if you don't think it's conventional or that it'll draw readers in, don't avoid sounding like yourself. You want to make sure that the sooner you figure out what your writing style is, the, the, the faster you'll be able to find readers who like that sound and who will read all of your books. If you're jumping from style to style in all of your books, especially within a series or even within the same genre, you're going to alienate readers. And I think I have the next question. So (laughs) I was going to say the end from me, Uh, but wait, nope. Okay. Phoenix says, I've had people tell me that my first book grabbed them and kept them reading. I tend to write relatively short chapters. I've heard it called potato chip style. I've also had people ask why the chapters were so short. Is this just a reader preference thing or is there a rule of thumb to try to shoot for a certain length? And as an FYI, she says, or Phoenix, I don't know, whatever, (laughs) writing YA (laughs) sci-fi. All right. So, uh, my first four books, the first, the, the, the book of Deacon trilogy and the first book that followed it didn't have chapters because the last series of books I read before I finished them up was, uh, written by Terry Pratchett and most of Terry Pratchett's books don't have chapters. So obviously there's no maximum length that a chapter can be because the entire book can be one. Uh, my rule of thumb these days is it needs to be long enough for it to make sense as a chapter, which is kind of a wishy-washy rule of thumb. But basically, something should happen in this chapter that is separated in time or space enough that it couldn't have happened in one of the surrounding chapters. And if that's not the case, then it should have been happening in one of the surrounding chapters, unless I didn't want it to, <laughs> because there's always exceptions. But... um uh, And on a long side, so that's the, the minimum. I like to have at least one major event happen. And alongside, I like to keep them below 9,000 words because 9,000 words is about an hour of narration. And if you're planning on doing an audiobook, keeping each individual audio chapter down below an hour 
back when we were commuting made a lot of sense. I guess since we're not commuting now, it makes less sense. But, but still, like, you try to keep it about an hour or 45 minutes per chunk of audiobook. And if you break down chapters, then try to shoot for, you know, 5,000 to 9,000 words. That's how I have, have planned things out in my books. So to some extent, this is kind of their genre expectations. So like with thrillers, shorter, faster paced chapters are definitely the norm. I know when I did my urban fantasy series, I deliberately made them shorter than I had been in like my epic fantasy or my space opera. Usually if you're doing kind of first person stuff too, you know, I, I'm going to say that's probably, they're probably going to tend towards shorter chapters. Whereas if you have a whole ensemble cast and you're doing a lot of point of views and unless you want to do a separate chapter for each scene, each person's point of view. Like I often will do two in a chapter, like in my space opera. Uh, I would say 4,000 words is kind of my norm, four to 5,000 words. But in the urban fantasy, because I knew that genre has a little expectations from like more faster pace than epic fantasy. They're more like 2,000 words. I, I get up to 3,000 words and like, oh, this one, this one may be a little too long, you know? So uh, be aware of what readers in your genre expect. Uh, but other than that, I probably wouldn't worry about it unless, unless people are, honestly, if people are bringing it up, there may be something weird about it. I don't think anybody's ever commented on my chapter length to me. Not to say that it couldn't be out there in a review or something, but, um, that could be a sign that if they're too short, maybe they're feeling a little choppy or shallow. Uh, not to say you're writing a shallow, but just that maybe you're not spending enough time with the characters for the interactions to feel substantial and meaningful. So, you know, just something to consider and get other opinions. I wouldn't just necessarily like one reader said my chapters are too short, uh, you know, wouldn't put too much stock into that. But if it is a recurring theme, uh, that may be something to look at. And um, as for me, the chapters in my teen epic fantasy were long, um, but the chapters in my urban fantasies are short. Like, and you're, you guys are gonna be like, holy cow, that's so short. Six page, six pages, double spaced, um, between two to three pages, single spaced. And all of them, all, almost all of them end on cliffhangers or mid scene. And I do that for a reason. It's, it's a, it's a, it, basically it, I like the faster paced, shorter chapters. And that doesn't mean the scenes are shorter. It just means the chapters are shorty, shorter. Um, Lindsay commented on people commenting on them. I've had people comment here and there on how short they are, but they weren't, they're not complaining. They were, they're like, wow, these chapters are short and it makes it hard to put the book down. And it's not a complaint. They're saying, you know, basically, so the biggest bit of feedback I've received is that my books are impossible to put down because they don't know when to put my debt books down. You know, there's, there's so much going on and my books do tend to be really, really fast paced and not super detail oriented. Um, there aren't many relaxing spots that give a sense of part done, you know? So you're like, oh, okay, I can take a breather and put this down now. So I, I frequently get people emailing me at like two or three in the morning, say, I just finished reading your book. I couldn't put it down. The chapters, you know, I don't, I don't have people comment on that a lot, but you know, when, when they do, they mention that the chapters, the way I, I structure them, make it hard for them to know when to put the book down. And that's not a bad thing in, in their eyes. And it's obviously not a bad thing in my eyes. Um, but my books are really short, um, 40,000 to 55,000 words long. And so giving readers an emotional break is not as important there. If you're writing longer books, then I would consider, you know, just, you know, check out what other people are doing in the genre. Like Lindsay mentioned, urban fantasy is, you know, the chapters tend to be shorter. So, um, you know, so you want to make sure you give readers that emotional break whenever they need it. Um, not whenever they need it. Right. But, um, 
it's, it's good with longer books, but if you are writing shorter books, they don't need as frequent of breaks like that as, as a, in a longer book. And so honestly, just see what your genre is doing and see what people are doing in that genre. And then just kind of go with what your writing style fits. And then if you do it the way I do it, I did a short chapters as a marketing thing. Like I want people reading through my books as quickly as possible. And so, um, and you can do it on purpose for that reason too. And there I stumbled way much over that answer. <laughs> All right. So next question is from Steve who says, a thought I've had, uh, I've been having while writing a series of my own. Is it better to have one main character that readers follow from start to finish or can a group of main characters spread the weight between them, particularly over a long series? So each one comes to the fore in different books. And uh, I've done it both ways and they both work. Uh, but generally speaking, I like to have at least two groups uh, of characters uh, in my stories just so that I can, like, there's a, there's a lot of utility in having two threads in a story because you can cut back and forth between them so that time and travel can happen in the one that you're not focused on. Uh, it, it allows you to continually keep things fresh by having a place to go. And, uh, uh, you know, in general, just when, when someone's about to have something that, that they need to do that takes time, uh, that isn't interesting, then you can just cut to the other group and look at what they're doing. And what do you know they're doing something interesting? How useful? So I definitely like two groups, but I have absolutely written very long stories that followed one person and had one point of view. So they both work. I've also done both ways. I, I think you're with first person or with a third person, the six to one POV character for the story or even the series, you may be less likely to lose people at any point. Um, I, I find that the read through is really solid on the, the series I've done where it is just one, but I also like Joe, I like to do my space opera and epic fantasies are usually multiple characters that are each, you know, heroes in their own right, trying to accomplish their own things. And I do think that with more POVs, though, you kind of run the risk of readers not being as into some of them and maybe skimming to get back to the characters they care about or just putting the book down if it, there's just too many. Epic fantasy can be really guilty of this. It's just like, oh my gosh, there's like two characters that I really like and then there's eight other POV characters and you just find yourself skimming because they're all flat. <laughs> they're all not that interesting. So I think if you want to do this ensemble cast, one of your strengths really needs to be good at characters. You need somebody, you need a leading man in each POV. Like they can drive the story on their own and they're interesting and they have personality and they have agency in the scene and the story. Because uh, if you're just kind of using it as a plot device, oh, what's happening over in the Black Castle while our heroes are over here in the Forbidden Chasm? Let's find out through this uh, minor character who nobody really cares about. And he's probably going to die later. Um, so yeah, you kind of, hopefully, you know, at this point, if you are good at characters and you can make them all really identifiable and make people care about them. Um, if that's not like a super strength of yours and it's okay, maybe you're better at plotting or, you know, writing those fight scenes. Although hopefully you have good solid characters or you just kind of, if you find as you're writing that one of the POVs is not really engaging you, there's all, you know, who is it? Is it Larry Elmore? Somebody said like, if it's boring to you when you write it, it's going to be boring to read. So if you're really struggling, think, you know, maybe like, maybe there's one character you like more than the rest of them. But so no right answer, just some things to think about. Uh, you know, try to make them all really interesting if you're going to have a, a big cast with a, a lot of different POVs. 
Um, I think I don't I like they're saying it this this definitely is going to depend on the genre. You're, you're right. Um I personally don't tolerate a lot of um POV switches or multiple characters just just very well just because I I don't know, like I like to get to know one character or maybe two characters, um, but usually no more than that. And then I like to stick with those two people. Um and I also don't read genres often where there's a lot of characters to follow, just mainly because my life right now does not tolerate long books very well. So, you know, uh, and, and I think the, the, the common advice is if you write more than one character, you need to plan on having each POV take another 20,000 words, right? Something like that, just so you can get to know their character, their backstory, their character arc, all of that, if they're a main character. And so the shorter genres, the shorter books tend to have only one POV, maybe two, and that fits my life right now. And so I, I don't, you're going to find that readers are going to prefer one way or another, and it's going to depend a lot on what genre you write. Yes. If you're writing romance, probably two. <laughs> Although I've done it with one, I've seen it done with one, but like you probably don't need the butler's point of view. You know, probably people just care about the, uh, the leads. Um, so last question, we've been going for quite a while. So thanks for sticking with us guys. This one is from Sean. What do you guys do when your main character turns out not to be likable? All right. So this has happened. Uh, plan A is to figure out what is unlikable about them and consider it a character flaw and make overcoming it part of the character growth. And since you're ideally you're going to have character growth anyway, this can feel very natural. Plan B, if that's not a possibility, or if you can't figure out why people don't like them, is to fade the focus on that character and let the supporting cast carry more weight. Uh, uh, I find often, I, I don't usually get it to the point where I completely change the lead for the series, but I'll frequently, uh, uh, frequently in that, you know, the, the one or two times I've had to do it, I'll go from having a strong primary main lead to having sort of a, you know, a first and second lead situation where they're carrying equal weight. All right. This has only happened to me that I knew of once that I was aware of and that other people told me <laughs> like, dude, this guy is not likable. It was my first series, The Emperor's Edge. It was when I was workshopping like the first version of a novel that was never published. Uh, I had the cold, aloof assassin as kind of the, he was the enigmatic, you know, kind of, he wasn't really the main character, but he drove the action. So you could argue that he was the main character leading this band of guys doing assassinly mercenary stuff. And, and one, uh, critiquer was like, I really do not like this character. He is a jerk. He's an ass. He's this cold-hearted bastard. And I was like, yeah, but that's how he is. Cause I'd always known the character and I didn't want to change him. That, that was his personality. And so I kind of scrapped that book for a while, but I still liked all the characters and I wanted to use them. And I kind of realized, I don't know, as, as a woman or girl growing up reading all this epic fantasy stuff, it was all really male dominated, like really a lot of male characters. And you'd, you'd have like the token love interest. And I realized I was writing my first series like that. I had these five guys. I was like, maybe I should do a female character. And at first I just had her along as part of the band. And I was like, you know what? What if she had to be in charge of these guys? And she had to be in charge of this cold hearted jerk of an assassin who actually is, became like, once I made Amaranth, the female character, the lead, it, it got a lot more interesting. And then uh, this guy was still the main character. He actually became the love interest. And readers ad not adored him. I don't think you can adore this character, but they loved him. They loved the mysterious, dark assassin. What's his past? So as a love interest or supporting character, he became a lot more interesting. Cause I had, then I had the likable everyday woman, you know, she was just a law enforcer that got caught up in this situation that starts the series. So maybe that 
you can, like Joe said, repurpose the character. Maybe he doesn't have to be the lead. Maybe he would be, or she, your, your female character could be unlikable too. Maybe in another position, they would be more interesting. So just depends where you are. You know, if you've written six books at this point, obviously it might be hard to change, but uh, be creative. You know, I would, and, and if you're determined that he'd be the lead, maybe you just need to give him some vulnerabilities or, or her. <laughs> I keep assuming it's a guy. It's unlikable. It must be a guy. Not true. I often hate female leads, <laughs> especially romance, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, so vulnerabilities can make us really identify with people. Uh, just a few kind of uh, interesting, fun quirks can make them a little more likable or relatable. So those are some smaller things that could possibly m- make him more interesting or her. <laughs> All right. That's it for me. Go ahead, Andrea. That's funny because the 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 time this happened to me, it was a girl. <laughs> the, my main character in Discern, the first book in my book in my Mosaic Chronicles. And and I had beta readers tell me that she was, you know, she was unlikable, that she was... um unkind is what they would say. She was unkind in her thoughts. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't understand because I tend to be blunt, but the problem with me is I'm usually face to face with people. And so they can tell how I'm thinking and I'm not being a jerk. I'm just, you know, I'm a little sarcastic, you know, whatever dry sense of humor, but, um, but people don't, that kind of stuff doesn't come across very easily sometimes in a book. And so when my beta readers mentioned that I went through and I softened things and then I published the book and, and wrote a couple more books in the series, maybe three or four books. And I went back to discern and I started, this is when it started doing well. And I noticed that, you know, reviewers were still commenting on her being unlikable. And I was like, this is my gut was my gut told me it was holding me back. I'm like, this is holding this series back. I need to get this figured out. And so, um, I ended up re-editing the book um, with a completely, and since it had been enough time, I had, and I was able to read, I was like, oh my gosh, they're right. She is, she's kind of a brat. And so I ended up re-editing it, softening her again. And then, and since the book hadn't been made into audio yet and it was in print, but it didn't matter. I typeset my own books. Um, I made changes on that and, and it's, it's, I mean, the series, it really took off after that. And it's made me a whole lot of money and making those changes on that first book ended up being pretty key and definitely something I did not regret. Um, it's really hard to know though, if that's going to be the case for your book. Like, is it not your book as in, you know, Sean's book, but just in general, you know, I mean, does, is your character unlikable and would a re, would an edit of that, of that book, would it service you? Would it make the book better? Would it make the book sell more? Or could you, you know, do what Joe did and pull back from that character or what Lindsay did and, um, you know, replot completely, like if the book hasn't actually been finished all, all the way yet. Um, but as any author's books aren't permanent unless you want them to be, um, unless you put a whole lot of money into them, but even, even still, you aren't, you're not, you're not going to a publisher and saying, Hey, can we make changes? And then having them saying, no, you're in charge. You can decide if the changes are going to be worth, um, making. It's funny how characters, you, you may not realize how your own character is coming across. So that is a good place where beta readers can be helpful. I've actually had the experience a number of times where online with the internet, where all you have is text to get people's, uh, what they're saying. I'm like, God, that person is such a jerk. I really hate that person. Why are they always so mean? And then you like meet them in person at a convention or something and you're just chilling and you're like, Oh, they're really cool. And you kind of, once you know them and know their personality, you kind of read the sarcasm in there, but it's really hard sometimes to get sarcasm or the right emotion with just a snippet of dialogue. So yeah, if you're in the person's POV, you can add some of their thoughts, right? So that you have to kind of explain why they're saying that or just 
you know, raise an eyebrow, ha ha ha. So, <laughs> you know, something to, uh, cause sometimes when you're blunt, that can come across as really harsh and, and unappealing. But if you then go like, if you then have the character go like, oh, I could see that her face fell when I said that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know, um, then you're like sympathizing like, oh, I get it. This character always says the wrong thing. I do that too sometimes. So uh, sometimes just adding some internal thoughts. All right. Andrew's got kids uh, knocking on the door. My dogs are probably wondering why I disappeared into the backyard an hour and a half ago and where I went. So uh, I think we're going to close up the show. Andrea, did you want to mention how long is your story bundle last till? Is that still going? You said, yeah, that's, it's still going until I think the end of November. And so there's still some time. There's still a little bit of time, guys. You got to do it before it's over. <laughs> Seriously, though, go grab it. There's, um, Dean Wesley Smith has a $150 course available in it. You can get it for $20. Um, and then a whole ton of books along with that. All right, cool. I will put the link in the show notes. And then Joe, Big Sigma, book one is free, right? People can go check that out if they want. That's right. Big Sigma one, which is called Bypass Gemini. Free everywhere. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening for the whole hour and <laughs> hour and 15 minutes, whatever we're up to. Uh, again, this is episode 60. If you wanted to you know, get the links that we mentioned in the show, you can find us at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And thank you for listening. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. Bye. See ya. So long, everybody. <laughs>